We're in the book of 1 Peter, and uh, we are surveying the entire book. It's a wonderful opportunity because it's not so huge that uh, we don't have to bite off huge chunks of the book. The central tension in 1 Peter is very much the central tension of your life. In fact, I'm not afraid to say that the central tension that his original listeners were dealing with is exactly the same as one of the key tensions that you may be living with. Here's the tension that they were dealing with. Following Jesus makes life difficult. Why does following Jesus make life difficult? Because following Jesus makes you different than the world around you. As you follow Jesus more and more closely, you will find, and probably you have found as you've aged and as you've walked with Jesus over time, that proximity to Christ changes you into the image and likeness of Christ more and more over time. And the reality is the more and more you look like Jesus, the less and less, less and less you look like the world around you. Following Jesus makes you different, and that can make life difficult. Now, if that's true, if following Jesus makes you different, it would be natural to ask a couple questions. Why would I do it? Right? If it's going to make me different, if it's going to make me stick out from the world around me, why would I do it? Another question you might ask is this, what does it look like? What does it look like to follow Jesus? What does it look like to live different? I'll deal with the first question last, why would I do it? And I'll spend the majority of the sermon dealing with the second question. What does it look like to live Different. Here's 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through to 25. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. It's a great passage. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. (laughs) I love that sentence. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now turned to the shepherd and 
overseer of your souls. Is that a great passage of scripture or what? I mean, this is a pleasure to preach. I only hope you get so much pleasure out of hearing it as I do out of preaching it. It is a beautiful passage of scripture. This is what it looks like to live different. Look at verse 11. Beloved. This is one of those sermons where you could preach a one-word sermon, drop the mic, and go home. What does it look like to live different? Be loved. Huh. I should go home right now. Be loved. Be loved. This is what it looks like to live different. To be loved. Be loved. Beloved. Be loved in Jesus. You want to live different? Live like you are loved and then extend it. It's very hard to love when you do not feel loved. Am I right? When you come to the powerful realization that in Christ you have been loved by the God of the universe like no one else can love, then and only then are you freed up to live securely and from that place of security love wildly. So if you find yourself suffering from a deficiency of love in your day-to-day life as a Christian, reflect upon the gospel. Because you'll almost always find that there's a direct connection between your awareness of, your awakeness to the power and truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the security that you feel in your life as a result and the freedom you have because of that to love wildly. We could literally stop right there. You want to live different? Be loved. And then live like it matters. I love this. Every time you get to urgent language, it's a license for Todd to preach like he's meant to preach. Beloved, I urge you. Live like it matters. Right? You want to live different? Live like it matters. Beloved, I urge you. Start living with some urgency. I don't know if you know any Christians whose lives seem kind of meh. If you're friends with them, exhort them. If you see that meh showing up in your life, speak to your own self. Get up and begin to live with some urgency. To live different is to live like everything matters. Let me talk to you for a moment about tweezers and ear hair. Just briefly, I pluck my ear hair to the glory of God. Now you're laughing, you're thinking, this is, he's so, he is crazy. I'm telling you the truth. Why? Because I know that if I show up to preach on Sunday and have a conversation with one person who fixates on my unkempt ear hair, they may think, that I am as careless with the Word of God as I am with my ear hairs. So we're laughing about it, but I'm telling you the truth. I literally make sure my ears are clean to God's glory. Everything matters. I only wear this watch on Sundays. Why? Because it's kind of impressive. That's not why I wear it on Sundays. It's the only watch I have that works. But I only wear it on Sundays because it's kind of impressive. Well, are you trying to impress us? No, that's why I don't wear it more often. I only wear it today so I can stay on time. But I will admit, a friend of mine bought it for me. 
one of my director friends in Los Angeles. I will admit that I am often tempted when going to a meeting to put this watch on to impress people. You're thinking, wow, he is so pathetic. I am what I am, what can I say? And so recognizing this, I repent of my desire to look good, and I don't wear the watch except when I must tell time, which is for the 30 minutes I have to preach to you today. See, I don't pluck my ear hairs because I'm vain. I do them so that the people I have to shepherd will feel like I'm sweating the details, so that they're free to receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save their soul. If I come across as sloppy, that doesn't help you engage with the text. I'm living with urgency. I urge you to do the same. Peter is urging us to do the same. Beloved, I urge you. Living different means living like everything matters. It also means not getting too caught up with being comfortable in the here and now. Why? Well, because living different means living like you don't belong. Still in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as strangers and sojourners. It's powerful. In the original language here, this means as expats, as pilgrims. This is a hard doctrine for us to receive as Canadians. Why? It's hard for us to act like we're from somewhere else and we're going home. Why is it hard for us to do that? Because we, as North Americans, by and large, are the descendants of strangers and sojourners. We are the descendants of pilgrims who fled the continent to seek a new life in North America. And as a result, our grandparents, great-grandparents, and great-great-grandparents struggled to build a life to the extent that a deep aversion to dislocation and discomfort has been literally bred into you for generations. The last thing we want as Canadians is insecurity. The last thing we want as Canadians is dislocation because our great-great-great-great-grandparents suffered the ultimate dislocation when they boarded their ships, in my family's case, and fled Ireland. So you need to recognize that you have, as a Canadian, a deeply inbred aversion to this teaching. You are not going to want to live like this place is not your home. You are going to resist with every fiber of your being the urge to live like heaven is your home and like you're just passing through. You're going to find yourself preferring comfort and sameness at almost every turn. Exactly like Peter's original audience. Peter's original audience had lived in the provinces in which they lived for generations Those provinces had been settled by Roman soldiers. This was the pattern in the Roman Empire. They would conquer a territory and they would allow the soldiers who had done the conquering to settle in that territory, thereby killing two birds with one stone, rewarding their soldiers for the good service they'd performed, incentivizing them also, and then assuring the ongoing Romanization of that territory as those Roman soldiers intermarried with the women of that land and Romanized it through the ensuing generations. They made northeastern Europe feel like Italy. They made it feel like home. 
Peter's saying to them, live like a stranger and a sojourner. Live like you don't belong. You can ask yourself the following question this week. How can I introduce some pilgrimness into my otherwise stable North American life? Tall order? Somebody nod at me. It's going to be a tall order for you. The more established you are, the more entrenched your life is. Hey, and I preach this in a church that's been together for 40 years. That's full of people who have never moved. I'm not saying move to New Zealand. Right? I'm saying live on Sydenham like your home is in Zion. Organize your life in the South End like you're really Judean. Ooh, this will preach good. And just in time, the text gets more difficult here. (laughs) Why? Because living different is difficult. Look at verse 11. Second half of it. Abstain from the passions of the flesh with wage war against your soul. You want to live different? Live like lust is your enemy. What is lust? In the original language is epithumia, which means a longing, especially for that which is forbidden. When you dig a little deeper into the meaning of epithumia, it means an inordinate longing. Okay, so this is not garden variety, say we're talking sexual lust. This is not garden variety sexual interest. Okay, this is an inordinate longing. This is a longing that becomes the center of your awareness, that becomes the center of your identity. Lust. Lust is absolutely central to the human condition post-Eden. If you look at the Eden story, it's the lust for knowledge, the lust for equality with God, which drives Adam and Eve, to disobey God's order not to touch the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the first place. In fact, the serpent accesses their disobedience through the pathway of lust. He seeds the idea in their mind, and that's all it takes. Did God really say, You shall not surely die? So lust shows up lust for knowledge, lust for equality with God. In our age of the world, lust for autonomy. Right? The Christian church has focused for generations on dealing with garden variety lust. Sexual lust, addiction. But it has rarely focused in on our lust for autonomy as absolutely bedrock to our dislocation from God. The lust we have to put ourselves on the throne. The lust we have to provide for ourselves. The inordinate desire that drives us to protect ourselves, protect our families, protect our future at all costs. Do you see it in your own life? Lust is bedrock to our human fallenness. And the clear teaching of Scripture is that lust is your enemy. You want to live different? Go to war with lust. How do you do that? You need to understand the gospel first and foremost. You need to understand your Bible first and foremost. There is a great plague of biblical illiteracy in the Western church. Christians attend church on Sunday, but rarely crack their Bibles open. This is why we plan our sermon series years in advance. We're planned now all the way to the end of 2020. So that eventually as we begin to roll out reading plans, you can read ahead and know where we're going so that you for yourself can taste and see that the Lord is good in the pages of Scripture. So that you yourself can be equipped to go to war with lust when it shows up. Because the only way to battle lust is to know the gospel and to dethrone lust with the weapons of your warfare, 
which are the weapons of the Spirit of God. The sword of the Spirit, the word of truth. There is no shortcut to beating lust. One of my favorite examples, I'm bringing this one out from the vault. I preached this for the first time in my Toronto church. If you want to uh, kill lust, stop buying Oreos. That's the devil right there. I was about to say, for those of you podcasting, but it's on video now, so you can see. That's the devil. When I was a teenager, I used to uh, take six of them, eat them two at a time. So I'd stack two, put them in my mouth, glass of milk. It's all fine and good until I hit my mid-twenties and realized this was maybe not the best plan. Now, this may not be, you know, your issue. It's mine. I, I love Oreos. I mean, they're literally talking to me right now sitting there. <laughs> so I literally got to a point in my life where I had to stop buying them. Now, through the power of the gospel, I have actually conquered my gluttony. So when Oreos show up in my house, delivered there by she who shall remain nameless, <laughs> for my children, for lunches, I can now actually open the cupboard in freedom and not eat six Oreos at one fell swoop. But you may have a season where you need to stop buying Oreos. Now, when I was pastoring my church in Toronto, the internet was first showing up. And all the young men in my congregation and all their struggles with pornography went from late night cable to immediately available on their laptops. And it swept like a plague through my church. It was crazy. Every altar call, every ministry time, I'd have like 16 dudes struggling with internet porn. Like, of course, it's gone from late night cable to now it's available to you all the time. We're now a generation down, and it's on their smartphones. In fact, I was at football practice this week at Centennial, and I was listening to some of the teenage boys, and they were literally talking about the interactions they'd had on a chat room the night before with a woman they were paying to strip for them and they were interacting with them on their phones. You don't need me to talk about it to realize how sick and twisted that is. Even mainstream pop music is beginning to reference the fact that the young men, one generation removed from me, are finding themselves sexually crippled because they do not know how to interact with a woman anymore because they have become enslaved to their screens. Now, if you do any study on this, it is not a strictly male epidemic. It's becoming a factor in more and more women's lives. So I used to say to the young men in my church, stop buying Oreos. I literally forced them to cancel their cable, get rid of their computers, do whatever it takes. If you are an addict, you need to act like an addict and stop buying Oreos. I'm here to testify that you will get to the point where you have freedom again. Because if you fast from sin long enough, it shrivels up and then it dies. And because you are in Christ, freedom is yours. Stop buying Oreos. And as if this list wasn't tough enough, it gets worse. Let me read you verses 12 through 17 in their entirety. 
Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. I was freaking out. It's hard for me to preach like first service and second service because if this was first service, I'd have to stop now. But then it's like, it's only first service. I still got time. I'm like, all right. We're good. You want to live different? You need to live so honorably that even those who hate you will one day give God glory. Try that one on for size. You need to live so honorably that even those who hate you will one day give God glory. Does anybody hate you? When I write this, as someone who has a lot of people who hate him, I actually thought about you, and I was like, I wonder if there are people in the room who've never experienced hatred before. If that's you, I, I envy you. I don't know if anyone hates my brother. He's like the nicest person alive. Definitely no one hates my sister. I got all the hateableness in our family. You're like, Todd, it's your own fault. I know. I'm not that self-deluded. It doesn't mean I'm happy about it. You ever been hated? It's no fun. Now, it's one thing not to be hated because you're kind. It's another thing not to be hated because you're soft. I'll say this carefully. There are occasions when followers of Jesus do not suffer hatred because they do not follow Jesus very obviously. They don't stand out enough. See, like it did with our forefather Noah, hear this, living faith condemns the world. Okay, living faith condemns the world. Hebrews 11 Verse 7 says it explicitly. How does it do so? It condemns the world not by telling the world that it's bad. Don't mishear me. It condemns the world because over and against a secular, materialist, idolatrous, self-worshipping culture that says, life is all about you, the authentic Christian declares the opposite. And they declare it by the way they live. Your very deeds as a faithful follower of Jesus say to a world that says life is all about you, no, it's not. Faithful Christianity declares by its actions, there is a God, He is the King, and you are His dearly beloved subject. And that's offensive. The life of every true Christian testifies to the world around it, you are not the center of the universe. Last time I checked, people don't want to hear that one. In fact, people will hate you for it. Which is why 
Peter is telling his audience, urging them, in fact, to live an exemplary life. An exemplary life. A life so outstanding that one day even your haters will come to their senses and give God glory. Now the promise here in the text is difficult. Even the interpreters aren't quite sure. If the day of visitation refers to the day of their repentance, meaning when your hater comes to faith in Jesus, they will give God glory because of your exemplary life. If you think on it that way, it clearly works, does it not? Maybe you've experienced this. I have. Where people who hated me expressed their hatred towards me, worked out their hatred towards me, came back to me 10 years later and repented, said, I'm sorry. I was in a bad place. I was wrong. Please forgive me. It took 10 years, though. And most often, the work and the damage that they had done in their active hatred towards me was done. And there was nothing I could do to undo it. So it works in that context that they will give God glory in the day of visitation if the day of visitation is speaking about their day of repentance. It also works if the day of visitation refers to the eschaton, the end of all things, when Jesus Christ returns to establish his kingdom, which will have no end, to judge the living and the dead. On that great and glorious day, we know that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And you can bet, based on the promises we have here today in 1 Peter, that in that day, those who hated you for the sake of your clear testimony of Jesus... tuck their tail between their legs and give God glory. Now, let me make one further point here. Off book. We ought to be very careful to not give people cause to hate us unnecessarily. It is true that many people hate Christians for good reason. Because we're idiots. Right? They see us picketing. I mean, they listen to us railing against our pet sin. I mean... On and on and on and on it goes. An exemplary life does not mean you, uh, you know, doing your best to support Jesus. Let me give you an example from my life. And again, I give this carefully, not because I'm trying to show you that I'm awesome. You all know very clearly that I'm not. My whole life, since I've become an adult, I have been careful to plow my neighbor's driveways in the winter. I never had a snow plow, I just had a shovel. And I was always careful to shovel my driveway and then shovel my neighbor's driveway. Why? Because I knew they would eventually find out that I'm a Jesus lover, and worse yet, that I'm a preacher. And so I knew that it is incredibly important that I do that one simple exemplary thing so that in the day of visitation they'll give God glory. So our neighbor, Bill, he's old. I mean, if you're 70, don't take offense, but he's like an old 70. (laughs) First crazy snowstorm that hit this winter, I'm out there in the middle of the night, plowing my driveway. I go and plow his driveway. Now let me say, this is not because of my good character. I don't want to do it. But I get to the bottom of the driveway, I'm like, yes, Lord. The gospel... And the gospel alone, God's goodness in me, not my own goodness, drives me to plow his driveway. 
So take that simple, foolish example and apply it to your own life and live a life so exemplary that those who hate you will, in the day of visitation, give God glory. Let that be your resistance to the sick and dying world in which you live. You see, to live different is to live a life of resistance, but not like a rebel. Verses 13 through 15 talk about subjection to authority. For the sake of time, I won't read them again, but you can see them there on screen. I hate these verses. To live different means to live under authority. This one really sticks in my craw. People often say to me, Todd, you, you seem like you have a real problem with authority. And I always say, I have no problem with authority as long as I'm in it. <laughs> and then we have a good laugh and they realize where I'm weak and maybe where I'm strong and where God is helping me and where God needs to help me. Okay, so this is hard for me. I read this passage, it's not easy for me to preach, let alone receive. Submit to authority because all authority in our passage today, even ungodly authority, is ultimately rooted in God's authority. That's heavy duty. Super heavy duty. All authority is ultimately rooted in God's authority, and all authority will ultimately answer to Him one day. So in this we find freedom. Not in rebellion, but in submission out of reverence for God. We submit to authority because ultimately God is the only authority and we know that any authority that is will one day ultimately bow the knee to His authority. This is how we can submit to ungodly rule without it crushing our souls. Because in our hearts, we know that in our submission, we're really submitting to God. Right? We're really submitting to God. Not to an unjust government, not to unjust laws. We're submitting to God. This kind of thinking makes Christian activism very difficult. This kind of thinking renders Christian militarism null and void. Both for me personally, a difficult prospect. I would like to go to war. My ancestors were warriors. Our coat of arms actually says, Invincible in battle, given to us by the Emperor Napoleon, for our great service in his war. There's an arm like this with an arrow. Right? That's my heritage. So the gospel here is speaking against my heritage. And so I have to bow the knee despite my preference to the scriptures. Now let me be careful to say that this does not mean that Christians care for the poor suffers in any way. Okay, We know from James that Pure religion and undefiled is this, to care for the widow and the orphan in their distress and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. So don't mishear me when I say that Christian activism and Christian militarism has to bow to the imperative we see today in Scripture. Don't mistake that. Don't hear me saying that we need not care for the widow, the orphan, and the oppressed. We must. Okay, that is justice. It is not activism. Difficult. But none of this is meant to be easy. Worship team, I'm done. I mean, almost. None of this is meant to be easy. If you look on screen at verses 16 through 17, you'll see how hard living different actually is. We're called to live free, but not loose. As servants of God. You could camp on that for an entire sermon. We're called to live free, but not loose. Difficult. How do you walk that out? 
learning to live free but not loose by being God's servant. The Bible's beautiful, right? It has a beautiful symmetry to it. Live free but not loose. How? By being God's servant. You take the identity of a servant. You see yourself as God's slave. Respect your co-image bearers, even if they're clowns. Why do we respect people? Because people are made in the image of God, full stop. So we respect everybody, even those who have different opinions than ours, even those who act like clowns, even those who are fools and mean, inconsiderate. We respect them because they're a co-image bearer. We love our sisters and brothers in Christ. There's a chance that some of us have opportunity to grow in this area, to learn to love more fiercely, love the brotherhood, fear the Lord. You could think on that this week. Am I truly afraid of God and do I live that way? Honor the government. And to add insult to injury, Peter absolutely goes for the jugular in verses 18 through 23 as we close. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You want to live different, endure injustice because God did. And remember that God will reward you when you suffer well. And why do you suffer well? Because you're called to copy Jesus. And Jesus suffered well, fully trusting God, his Father, the righteous judge. He suffered well because he knew that one day God, his Father, would judge rightly. So friends, live like you're loved. Live like it matters. Live like you don't belong. Like lust is your enemy. Live so honorably that even those who hate you will one day give God glory. Live like you're under authority, like you're free, but not loose, like a servant, respecting your co-image bearers, loving your brothers and sisters, fearing God, honoring the government, enduring injustice because God did, knowing that he will reward you someday, copying Jesus who trusted the righteous judge. Why should I live that way? Hashtag because the gospel. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Because he died that you might live, you should live for him, which is going to mean living different. Living different.